kids are dismissed at this time, I assume. All right. um, man, it's very great to be here. And man, honestly, as we were just singing that, I just got hit with this emotion. Like 10,000 years together and with him forever. Um, it's an awesome thing. I'm always humbled to, to come and to preach in front of you guys and to share God's word with you. Um, it, it's an honor to do that, but it's also always a very um, difficult task for me, actually. I think it is for everyone who preaches God's word. It's a very, uh, it's kind of like a, a heavy burden um, that we have to carry. And so I felt kind of inclined to, to, to start out with kind of a, a word of encouragement or a word of uh, warning to like the young uh, men in this room, um, aspire to be a teacher of God's word. Aspire to be that. Um, that is a good thing to hope for, but um, do so with hesitancy. Um, James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So whatever I exhort you to do today, God will require of me tenfold. Again, the author of Hebrews says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Teaching God's word is dangerous business. And whenever John gets up here and preaches, or I, or anyone else, this is what it's like. It's like holding a two-edged sword without a handle. And as we wield it to, to cut the fat of sin in your hearts, know that our hearts are just as bloody. Um, because there's something about preaching that magnifies the holiness of God and, and magnifies the sin of the person speaking. Um, there's no way I can live up to all the things that are in this book, and that's the beauty of the gospel, as God allows broken people to proclaim and to testify to the goodness of his son. So preaching is a good thing. Through it, God's granted us the ability to, to create light out of darkness, to bring joy through sorrow, to bring dead to life. As God said, let there be light, so we could say, let there be life. Um, but the cost is high, so I just encourage you uh, young men in this room, to, to, to seek that one day for yourselves, but to do so um, only when you are called. And for everybody else, um, I also want to encourage you as well. James also says, the, but, but be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. And elsewhere, Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So if you listen to sermons week after week and there's no desire in your heart to, to be changed or to conform the image and pattern of your life to what the word is saying, uh, James says that you are deceived. And worse yet, you're deceiving yourselves. Hearing the word of God is not your Christian duty, but rather receiving the word of God and letting it shape and conform and, and make you more like Jesus. That's what we are called to do. There's things that I'm going to say today that are going that you're not going to like, that your flesh is going to revolt against. I think that's the nature of, of preaching. Whenever we hear the word of God preached, our old nature, our sinful nature revolts at that. It, it doesn't want to be near that. But I encourage you to, 
to, to listen to the word preached and to receive it. I mean, I was thinking about how many different analogies God uses for this thing. He says he calls it, um, he calls it like refreshing water. He calls it food. He calls it better than treasure. He calls it pearls. He calls it all these different things. I mean, each week you are made rich through the word. This is like a block of gold, better than a block of gold. And so I pray that as you read it, as you hold it, that you treat it as such, and that each week you would come ready, come and, and take and eat, feast on the word of God. It, it, it's powerful and it's good. Um, as John was saying earlier, um, everything we do is by the grace of God. Everything we do. There's a lot of things that the scripture encourages us to do and exhorts us to do, but we know that we cannot do those things in our own power. It must be by God's grace. I was thinking that like the, the word of God um, is a house to live in. It's not a, a ladder to be climbed. And I think that's the problem sometimes. We get it backwards. We think we've got to do all these things in our own power and climb our way to heaven. But, th- but that's not the way that it works. God's given us a spirit in order to, to follow it and to do it. So along those lines, I want to pray that we would uh, receive his word and that we would uh, listen to it and that we'd let it conform our lives. So would you pray with me? Um, Heavenly Father, your word is so good. It is a, a healing fountain to those who go to it. Um, it both breaks us and builds us up. It's like food, like honey. Um, Father, I pray for the people in this room. I pray that, um, that your spirit would be active in their lives and that they would live by the power of your Holy Spirit and that as the waves of life crash against them, um, that they would stand on the rock of your word. Like you said, everyone who follows your word is like those who built their house on the rock. And so I pray that you would be um, our rock and that we would build our church um, upon the rock of the gospel. Father, I pray for your word today. I pray that you would help me to speak it clearly, and I pray that you'd help them to receive it. Um, It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you would turn in your text with me today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, starting on verse 1. So we've been going through this uh, Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has been preaching. It's the longest sermon that we have of him, and it's basically just a collection of about how to live life in the kingdom of God, right? Jesus has come, and he's ushering in this new kingdom, and he's ushering in a new ethic for us to live by, and this sermon helps um, teach us how to live life. And so something I noticed and something I was thinking about is that this, the Sermon on the Mount is, is it, it is about how God interacts with us, but it's mainly about how God's interaction with us conforms and changes our interaction with each other. And I think that's why it goes over all these different areas of life, to teach us how to deal with each other. Uh, Church is a community of people who covenant to follow Jesus together. I mean, the Christian life is inevitably communal. When Jesus calls you out of the world, he calls you into the church, into a fellowship. He doesn't call you off by yourself. He calls you into a community of people. And so we want to read the Sermon on the Mount. We want to listen to it so that we know how to interact with each other. If you commune 
with this church fellowship, you choose to commune with the words of Jesus. Um, so if, you're, if you would and if you're able, if you'd stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 1, um, and it should be um, also on the screen behind us. So Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. You may be seated. So this is an interesting passage. There's lots of imagery in there, lots of things to try to understand. And so Jesus begins with this phrase, well-known phrase, judge not lest you be judged. So certainly a, a, a favorite phrase of those who are outside the church, especially in our very tolerant culture. People like to, to use this phrase to justify whatever sin they like to indulge in. People like to use it like that. But it, it seems to be, have, have a greater meaning than, than the fact that we make no moral judgments at all. I mean, if you look at the rest of Scripture, there seems to be a, a bigger picture here. So yes, Jesus says, judge not, but, and that does agree with Paul in Romans chapter 2 and 14. He says, you know, who are you to condemn your neighbor, right? So this seems to be where we're not supposed to judge there. But in this very passage, Jesus says to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And then in John chapter 7, Jesus tells the Jews, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So are we to judge or are we not to judge? And this is how I break it down. I think there's two questions to answer in relation to this passage. The first question is, how are we not to judge? And the second question is, how are we to judge? So there's a right way and there's a wrong way to judge. So to the first point, how are we not to judge? So I don't think this passage puts a complete restriction on making any moral judgment whatsoever. I think it puts restraints on the way we are to do it and the goal and the hope in which we do it, right? So it's, it, it's not just, um, it, it's about the way we do it and the goal for which we do it. I think that's what's going to separate right judgment from wrong judgment, how we do it and kind of why we're doing it. Um, so why don't we do it? Jesus says, if you judge others in order to condemn you, God will judge you in order to condemn you. So you condemn other people, you will be condemned. Um, that seems to be the ethic that Jesus is teaching here. And I think it's very easy to make snap judgments about people. I mean, you look at people doing things wrong, you look at the news, you look at each other in the church, and it's very easy to, to look at someone when they make a mistake and to be like, oh, I knew that was going to happen. I mean, sometimes, and I found myself in this position, we kind of lie in wait for someone to make a mistake so that we can justify the fact that we don't like that person. So it's kind of like, oh, I knew that was going to happen, you know? It's like I knew that person's character. But something I'd encourage you with is the fact that God alone renders final judgment on each of us. He has the final verdict on your life and character. 
Not me, not someone else, God. As Paul says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? And elsewhere he says, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of the heart. That's the role of God, not our role. You know, I was reading Revelation the other day, Revelation chapter 20, and I encourage you, if you never get in that book, I mean, just kind of open it up sometimes. It's, it's, amazing. it's kind of a hard one to interpret, I think, but it, it offers hope for us in the future. It tells us exactly what is going to happen. We know the future. It is there. Um, so I encourage you to get into it. But in Revelation chapter 20, there's this, this scene of a courtroom in heaven, right? And so you've got God, and you've got people, and you've got angels, and different things like that. And if you've ever read that passage, uh, you can answer the question, who's sitting on the throne? Are humans sitting on the throne? No. Humans are the ones on trial before God. We're the ones who stand before God in judgment. God alone is the one on the throne. Therefore, whenever you render a verdict on someone else's life or judge them, you echo the words of Satan himself, who said, I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Um, That's what we do when we judge other people. I want to take a second to like to look at the example of Satan. You know, something that we don't really talk about and the world certainly doesn't believe in this thing that we talk about, but he's very real. Scripture says that he, he goes around like a roaring lion, but in, in um, Revelation, it also calls him the accuser. It says, for he accuses us before our God day and night. So every sin that you commit springs to the mouth of Satan in the presence of God. He's accusing us day and night, day and night. Everything we've done before God saying, God, God look what he did there. What, what are you going to do about that? Aren't you just? What are you going to do about that? So ever since Adam and Eve sinned, Satan has been um, coming against mankind and accusing us of all of our wrongs. But I want to kind of press into to what do you think this does to the, the, the soul of Satan? As the years pass by and as he accuses the brethren over and over and over again, as he fosters bitterness in his heart, I feel like his heart's got to be changed ever so slightly, a little bit more, a little bit more twisted, his heart a little bit more callous, his mind a, a little more sick, his isolation a little more sure. And I think the same thing happens to us whenever we live a life of criticizing other people. It's like, you know, we we don't expect it to happen. I don't think Satan, I mean, he he willfully chose to disrespect God and to choose self-righteousness, but I don't think he realized what that would do to, to him as a being, do to his soul. And I think the same thing happens to us whenever we judge. If we, I think, ever so slightly Little by little, I think we're, we're, we're changed um, with every condemnation of someone. Um, and it's kind of like this kind of picture that I have. It's like the sun setting in the afternoon, right? It's kind of imperceptible at first. Like it's setting and you, you can still see. But then it kind of dims into a twilight. And then it 
dims into darkness. It's a gradual thing. Um, and I think the same thing can happen to us. You know, as the years go by and as we condemn other people and as we live a life of criticizing other people, I think um, we end up being something that we didn't intend to be in the beginning. Um, so I think that's the, the warning and the caution that, that Scripture has for us there. Um, you know, the last thing about Satan, I think until God casts Satan out forever from heaven, he's like an off-key note in the chorus of heaven. Um, to use Tolkien imagery, um, the collective song in heaven is a little off-key. And I think the same thing happens to us whenever we bring judgment and really whenever we bring sin into the fellowship of God, unrepentant, unconfessed sin. I think it, it, it causes the collective song of this gathering to be just a, a little off-key. So I think that's encouragement for us to, to come to service, to gather together with repentant hearts, with, with hearts of confession, with hearts asking for God's forgiveness, knowing that he's there, he's ready to give it to us. Um, but if we come unrepentant, that affects everyone in the room. Um, so Jesus gives us the opposite ethic. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. You reap what you sow. If you live a life condemning others, you will eventually be condemned. You say, okay, that's the case. Not supposed to judge that way. <laughs> so what is the way we're supposed to judge? Um, I think Jesus gives a picture of it. If you go on, it kind of gives an illustration, right? So he's talking about, you know, imagine there's a man, and he goes and he's trying to take a, a splinter like a speck out of somebody's eye, which is certainly an annoying thing. Certainly you got to get out of there, right? Um, but he's like, imagine the first man also has a, a plank, a, a, a stick sticking out of his own eye. I think we can all see the irony in the situation, right? I mean, there's irony in that. There's not irony in that Alanis Morissette song. I mean, there's irony in this. Uh, that was for you, Evan. <laughs> So I think we can see the irony, and I think the, the reason that he does that is because the goal of right judging is to be approved, the judging that's approved by God seeks the spiritual benefit of others. Judging that is approved by God seeks the spiritual benefit of others. James tells us, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Right judging is motivated by love for one another. You cannot love someone if you don't care about their spiritual well-being. That's why the world does not know love, because they don't care about the things of God. They don't care about the judgment that's coming, but we care about that. We care about each other. We want to help each other be more like Jesus. That should be the, the motivation of our judgment, the motivation of our judgment calls when it comes to people. And it should guide our approach and all those different things. But people, people don't really want to do that. I've noticed that we really like to judge from a distance. Like we always like to judge kind of from afar. And we like to judge people who we really don't have any stake in their life, not really our friends. We just kind of, it's usually from the outside looking in is, is who we like to judge. And our culture just eats that up. 
I mean, I don't know, have you guys seen that video of the ESPN reporter? And she's like talking to the uh, tow truck company or something like that. And it's really rough. She's got being very condescending. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's a, it's a rough interview or it's a rough exchange to watch. And she got caught on camera. And you can actually see her look up and see the fact that she's caught on camera. And you see her face. But um, it, it, it's an interesting thing. And this is on YouTube. And there's 500,000 views to this video. And there's like hundreds, if not thousands of comments of people condemning her as she's condemning the tow truck lady. And so I think it's something that kind of feeds into itself. And I think this is not the picture that Jesus wants us to follow. I think Jesus wants us to encourage one another as we live in community. That we'd seek each other's good, not to tear down, but to build up. But in order to do that, we have to be in each other's lives. I think in order to be true ecclesia, in order to be true church and community, we have to to walk with one another on a regular basis, not just on Sunday, but doing things like after church, like spending time together, and and people on this side of the room go and talk to people on this side of the room, and people who are older talk to people who are younger, and people of different backgrounds. I think the church brings us together, and we need to foster that community, and I think as we do that, um, it will help us to to love one another and to, to help one another spiritually. The first thing is judging has as its goal the spiritual benefit of others. And the second thing is we are to judge with hesitation. Um, Just as I am to teach with hesitancy, you are to judge with hesitancy. If you remember, throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been talking about the Pharisees who are hypocrites. And he's saying, you guys give for the wrong reasons. And you guys fast for the wrong reasons. And you guys pray for the wrong reasons. You know, do all these different things while you're far from God. And so I think Jesus here is exhorting us not to be so quick to judge someone else without having any regard to our own spiritual condition. That's why I had that thing earlier about preaching. I mean, I got to get up here and I've got to tell you how to live your life, but I know that I myself have issues and I have faults and I'm broken. So I think before we go to other people and we try to make judgment calls about them or we try to help them spiritually, I think we need to look at ourselves first to see if we're right, um, right with God. And I think it's interesting. Jesus offers um, something cool. He says, once you take the plank out of your own eye, once you recognize the sin in your life, confess it, pray to God, ask for his forgiveness. Once you get him right, then he says, what's the goal? He says, you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You can't take the speck when you got something in your eye, but once you get it out, then you can go and you can help your brother. So this is the sequence. You, you take the log out of your own eye, and then you see clearly. You take the speck out of your brother's eye. He sees clearly. And now you can both see clearly. And I think that's what church is. I think that's the goal of what Jesus has for us being together, to help us see Christ more clearly. And I think that's the reason he puts us in a community, because a lot of times other people can see your own faults more than you can see um, the fault in yourself. Um, and I think that's why it's very dangerous to, to move away from Christian community, to move away from the church. God calls us into regular fellowship. So I think that if you're moving away from that and you're not regularly meeting with the church, I think that you're prone to fall into all kinds of sin. As Ecclesiastes says, two are better than one, but woe to the one who is alone when he falls and not has another to pick him up. 
So let's end the passage in verse 6. This is a crazy little um, snippet here. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. (laughs) What does that mean? Um, I think you've got to look back to kind of Jewish tradition. And in Jewish tradition, a lot of time, pearls represents spiritual teachings or proverbs or good sayings, things that are very beneficial to you in life. It's kind of like Jesus saying the gospel is treasure hidden in a field, right? It's something that's very valuable. So that's what the pearls represent. What are the dogs and the pigs? What's that all about? I know we live in a culture where people love dogs. Some people love dogs, I should say, not myself. But in Jewish culture, dogs and pigs were the lowest of the low, unclean animals. Um, So you have this juxtaposition between a very valuable thing, the teaching of God, pearls, and, and something that's very unholy, very unclean, pigs and dogs. Um, but who or what are the pigs and dogs? That's the question. Some people might disagree with this, but I, I think this is representing people who violently oppose the gospel. I'm not just talking about people who, who don't receive, but people who, like Satan who actively oppose the work and message of Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus sent the disciples out, he told them, if you go to a village and, you know, they throw you out, wipe the dust off your sandals. He's like, forget about them. They are judging themselves. And it reminds me of this one time um, I had a friend, and she was on a mission trip in China, and she uh, went into someone's house. She was invited into their house, and she's talking to the husband and wife, sharing the gospel. And as the husband is listening to her talk about Jesus and the things of God, he gets super livid, like his face turns red, and he gets super angry. And he takes the cup of water that he had given her. It's like a plastic cup, how they do it over there. He took the cup of water, and he threw it out the door, and he kicked her and her friend out. Didn't want anything to do with it. I think that's what Scripture's talking about here. To, to, when people violently reject the message of Jesus, we're to move on. They've judged themselves. So, as we move into a time of closing, you now possess the meaning of the passage. What do you do with it? I mean, you've got to do something with it, right? You can't just hear it and leave. If you hear it and leave and do nothing, you deceive yourself. That's what James says. But if you receive it and you let it change you, then you will be blessed. When the people heard Peter at Pentecost, they were cut to the heart and asked the disciples, Brothers, what do we do now? I think the answer is always the same. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. I mean, in a crowd even this size, there's probably one person who's not believing in the gospel. One person who's yet undecided of whether or not they want to choose God or choose themselves. And uh, maybe you think Christians are too judgmental. I don't doubt that we have been in the past. Maybe you live by the code, only God can judge me. You ever heard this one? Only God can judge me. And people mean it as in, you know, don't, don't evaluate my life. Don't, don't, don't look at my actions, you know. Like, only God can judge me. And actually, um, man, if you guys are familiar with the Tupac at all, he has a song, um, only God can judge me. That was his motto. This is what he says. 
Only God can judge me now. Only God and nobody else. All you others, get out of my business. But listen to what the Lord says. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You're right. Only God can judge you. But God has rendered his judgment. And it's this. The soul who sins shall die. Whether you die peacefully at 90 years old or whether you end up on the concrete like Tupac, we all face God's judgment when we die. And so if you don't believe in the gospel, if, you, if you're not under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, I just encourage you, I exhort you to do that today. If you're unsure, you can come talk to me, you can come talk to John, but this is what we are about. We are about proclaiming the message that Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, and now he offers life to everyone who would receive it. And so he stands with open arms, come, come to me. I'll be a rock to you, I'll be a house to you. So I pray that you would. If you are a believer today, what do you do? If the answer is the same, believe in the gospel. Gospel is not something that you start with and then leave to go on to something else. The gospel is the only hope. And I think as we remember the fact that we were once sinners, as we remember the fact that we were dead in our trespasses, and Christ in condescending love came down to earth, bore our sins, bore patiently our sins, and died on the cross for our transgressions, I think as we remember that, we will be less prone to judge other people. I mean, if you have something against me, we should talk about it. We should get right together. But you have no right to judge to condemn me. All my sin, all my pride, all my lust, all my words used to hurt you, anything I've done wrong has been nailed and died with Jesus on the cross. Such it is with everybody in this room who believes in him. Jesus ushered in a revolutionary ethic that we forgive each other our sins. Not that we judge each other, but that we would overlook each other's faults, that we'd help each other be more like Jesus. That's the way the church is supposed to be anyway. So I pray that we would do that, that we'd follow Jesus' example. So as we close, um, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, as we've been doing each week. And uh, the Lord's Supper is so beautiful. Um, It's a picture of the fact that Jesus' body was broken for us. It's a picture of the fact that Jesus shed his perfect blood and it dropped on the ground from the cross for our sake. But you know, it's also something more than that. I think the Lord's Supper is also a sign that we covenant as a community together. Notice Jesus does not call us to do the Lord's Supper off by ourselves, right? He calls us to do it when we're gathered, as often as you meet together. 
do the Lord's Supper. And so I pray that you would um, share your heart with me, that I would share my heart with you, that you may be in me and I may be in you, and that we may be of one heart under the King, Jesus Christ. That's the picture of the church that Jesus envisioned. And I think it's something that's possible and something that we're working toward. Um, so as I pray, I'm going to pray. Um, the deacons are going to come up. And after I get done praying, that'll be your um, sign that you can come. and You take of the Lord's Supper. Um, so you pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Without your Holy Spirit, your commands are impossible. They're so heavy, Lord. But you also said that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I thank you that you have poured out your Spirit abundantly on this place, among these people as we trust in you. Your spirit's like a river. It's like a river of life that flows from us. May it flow from our hands and from our hearts and may it flow from our mouths as we speak to each other, Father. And I pray, Lord, that as, the, as we take of the Lord's Supper and as the bread comes to our lips and as the, the juice falls in our tongue, Father, I pray that we would be impressed with your radical unrelenting, impassioned love for us. That you, with your coming, changed everything. So maybe go forth, Father. Maybe go forth in community. Maybe go forth as one people. And may others outside the church look in and see that and be drawn to it. Father, I look forward to spending 10,000 years and forevermore with these people. Father, I pray that you'd send Jesus quickly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So you come, you partake.